Hello, Ketawan Toki Herakamlo Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific, Mikoroi Hawkins. Coming up first. We need increase in wages. We need to do something about inflation. We need to close the Pacific pay gap. You can't budget your way out of poverty. Pacifica in New Zealand are hoping the government's budget addresses challenges within their communities. Ensuring that current laws don't create risks for people to lose their citizenship or become stateless. Pacific governments are being urged to protect the status of their citizens amid a worsening climate crisis. This chapter is coming up looking at where voyaging goes into the future. Um, what voyages do we need to take? How do we go about them? And we talanoa with Lehua Kamalu, the Polynesian Voyaging Society's first ever woman captain and navigator. The New Zealand government is being urged to implement long-term solutions to tackle poverty in Pacific communities. On Thursday, all will be revealed as hundreds of millions will be allocated across Aotearoa in the budget release. There are calls to tackle the rising cost of living and to address health issues for Pacifica, which have been exacerbated during the pandemic. Alicia Foon has more. The rising cost of living is hitting Pacific communities particularly hard. Many Pacific High School students haven't been back to school since the pandemic because they've had to work to help their family pay the bills. Al-Shadan Tautolo is an associate professor at the Centre for Pacific Health and Development Research at AUT and says covering the basics is a struggle for many. We all know just in our daily lives the rising costs of things, groceries and supermarket prices and petrol in Auckland anyway, is just ridiculous, you know, over $3. So, you know, how is all that? that, I mean, that's having a huge impact on our communities. More than 25% of Pacific children in New Zealand live in poverty, according to research released last year from the Child Poverty Monitor. Auckland University sociologist Dr Sidiana Naipi says the government must move past Band-Aid solutions. You can't budget your way out of poverty, And so really what we need is an increase in wages. We need to do something about inflation. Um, We need to close the Pacific pay gap. She says it's crucial the pay gap gets attention in tomorrow's budget. In 2020, if you're a Pākehā with a bachelor's degree or higher, you earn $36.29 an hour. And if you're a Pacific, it was $31.24 an hour. It means that Pacific students with bachelors are earning 10 and a half grand less every year, even with the same qualification. But we can legislate in ways that enable us to address racism that we experience in our pay. She says it's also about improving the lives of future generations. A quarter of our babies grow up in poverty, and what does that mean for them and their families in the short term and the long term? Because they have just as much a right as everyone else to enjoy the sort of economic realities of being in Aotearoa. South Auckland consultant paediatrician Dr Tuila Percival wants the disparity in Pacific health outcomes to be addressed. Long-term conditions like diabetes, heart disease, intermediate determinants of those conditions like obesity and inactivity. And then we have children's health with lots of infectious diseases still, lots of respiratory disease. I think mental health, particularly with the current pandemic, has increasingly become a big issue for Pacific as well. She'd also like better pathways to encourage more Pacifica to become doctors, health administrators and pharmacists. Waikato Pacifica Business Network spokesperson Rachel Afiaki Taumoebeo hopes this year's budget will look into funding Pacific businesses in the construction sector to accommodate housing.
housing is a, a massive need uh, for our Pacifica people, but why can't our Pacifica businesses be part of that solution? Therefore, it would be really great to see a budget where Pacifica can leverage and build and participate in these much-needed sectors that will also accommodate the needs of our Pacifica people. A Pacifica entrepreneur wants more funding for service providers to help small Pacific businesses turn digital. Julius Mataopo says the COVID pandemic has demonstrated how businesses have used digital platforms to stay operational. COVID kind of just highlighted um, the importance of small businesses understanding how to pivot the digital platforms and kind of uh, navigating that space. It'll be good to, to see some of that budget going into service providers who are willing to articulate to small Pacific businesses how, how to do that. Christchurch social worker Tuwalipai Luella Thompson-Inder has witnessed a lot on the front lines. She urged the government to take note. It's not enough that you, you just do a, a topping of and think it's a token gesture and think it's done and also look at us as quite diverse. There's diversity in there. You can't put it all in the same basket. We need to have more Pacific providers in health and education. The call for a long-term plan and lasting solutions to give Pacifica communities the tools to thrive. A group of Australian academics is encouraging Pacific governments to take action to ensure their citizens do not end up stateless and lose their nationality because of the negative impact of climate change. They've published a report this week called The Future of Nationality in the Pacific, Preventing Statelessness and Nationality Loss in the Context of Climate Change. Don Wiseman asked one of the writers, Professor Jane McAdam from the Caldor Centre for Refugee Law at the University of New South Wales, how to go about preventing statelessness? Well, it's by being on the front foot and ensuring that current laws don't create risks for people to lose their citizenship or worst case scenario, become stateless. So in the new report that we've released this week, we've mapped the nationality laws across 23 Pacific Island countries and territories to show where there are current risks of people losing their nationality or their children not being able to acquire nationality, which is important in and of itself. But certainly, if we start to see larger numbers of Pacific Islanders moving elsewhere, we really need to ensure that that those risks are averted. At this point, what sort of numbers of people from the Pacific are stateless? Numbers aren't uh, terribly large at, at the current point in time, but there are certainly some some risks that we have identified. And, you know, some of those are risks that exist right now, but others are ones that are more likely to become problematic if more people move abroad. And if I can give an example of that, some Pacific Island countries and territories have laws that say if you live in another country for a particular period of time, then you can lose your citizenship of your country of origin, or uh, you might be precluded from and passing down your citizenship to your children. A couple of countries also have uh, laws that preclude people from acquiring dual or multiple nationalities, or that only allow dual nationality in, in very limited circumstances. And I think if we, you know, if we turn our eye to the future, that's a particularly important thing for Pacific Islanders 
not only they want to retain a, a formal legal connection to home, but also in terms of people's own personal identity and sense of belonging. And as we know in the Pacific, being separated from, from land, from home, is something that goes very, very deeply to people's sense of who they are, their sense of belonging and culture, community. So at least if a, that sort of legal preservation of identity can occur, that too can then help to establish and maintain communities elsewhere. And all of this, of course, becomes a lot more significant as climate change grows in terms of its impact on the Pacific. Absolutely. I mean, there's no Pacific country that is immune from the impacts of disasters, which are likely to become more frequent and or more severe as climate impacts take hold. We're already seeing more and more people being displaced, sometimes over and over again, because of these disasters. And, you know, some people will be very averse to moving for as long as possible. For some people, that's an act of political resistance in and of itself. But for others, people may reach a tipping point where they simply feel they can't stay in place anymore. And at the moment, most people aren't crossing borders and, and the Pacific's geography limits the extent to which people cross borders when disasters strike. But I think what people are starting to look towards, and certainly in the, the research that I've done in some Pacific countries, the roots of, of lawful migration, labour migration, seasonal work and so on, are certainly being looked at as ways to diversify livelihoods and opportunities, and in the longer term as avenues to move elsewhere. So how do you prevent this statelessness? Well, for a start, I mean, if countries were to ratify the two UN conventions on statelessness and then implement their provisions in domestic law, that's a very good first step. Ultimately, it's down to individual Pacific countries as to what they choose to do. But our sense is by highlighting where the current risks are that arms Pacific governments with the tools, uh, with, you know, with the information and then the tools to start to address some of these concerns. And I think, you know, something that, that comes along with this and is, again, looking quite a long way down the track, but still important to do so, is if people start to live elsewhere, and indeed there are some Pacific countries already where the bulk of the population lives somebody, somewhere else, it's important for people to be able to hang on to their voting rights because with climate change and sea level rise, well before countries might become uninhabitable, the bulk of people will need to move somewhere else. And if they haven't been able to retain their citizenship, then that also means that a future government starts to lose the number of people who can, can vote for it. And when you've got countries like Tuvalu contemplating the creation of a digital nation for the worst case scenario where they do have to move elsewhere, then you want to make sure you've still got your population there to be able to vote for you. So that's a very practical but long-term strategy that, that shows quite aside from the, the sense of belonging and, and legal status and so on, why having your nationality retained is particularly important, even if you're a, a, a citizen of another country as well. The Polynesian Voyaging Society's first ever woman captain and navigator, Lehua Kamalu and her team, have successfully completed the first leg of their Kealai Kahiki voyage from Hawaii to Tahiti. The voyage involved the two Polynesian voyaging canoes, Hokulea and Hikinalia, with the focus of the voyage being on navigational training and cultural protocol to prepare the crew and test the canoes before they embark on the Moana Nuiakea voyage next year. 
While in French Polynesia this week, Beijing leaders are also participating in the Blue Climate Summit, a high-level meeting to discuss ocean protection and climate change. Lehua Kamalu joins me now. Nisan Bolivinaka and welcome on Pacific Waves. Aloha, yes. O lehua koinoa, lehua kamalu koinoa piha, no Hawaii maiau. My name is Lehua and I served as the captain and navigator aboard the Wa'akaulua Hokulea from our voyage from Hawaii to Tahiti, just completed this past Saturday. And I understand you're the first woman captain for for such a voyage. What an achievement! First, first woman captain navigator. It's a very fascinating role uh, in that it there's so much going on, uh, and I think historically we think of that role as being one in in the last many years since the revival of this voyaging practice and since Hokulea's birth. I think we've been relearning how to do all the different roles that it takes to actually sail and navigate and successfully complete a voyage and so in that space navigation and and captain have actually been held as separate roles oftentimes i think the only ones that have actually uh, filled that role that dual role have been nainoa or kalepa or onohi and shorty and bruce blankenfeld Um, these are our pole navigators here in hawaii and uh, it's it's because it's hard. <laughs> there's there's a lot going on there. You know, one part of it I'd say is more focused on making sure the va'a and the canoe and the crew are are well or cared for or knowing what they need to do and, and how to operate the vessel. And then there's the navigation, which is really paying attention to what's going on completely surrounding the va'a, what's in the sky, what's going on with the ocean um, and getting you from point A to point B. So and putting those together and trying not to, you know, lose too many, too many brain cells and too, too many hours of sleep. Uh, it is a sleepless task, uh, notably, but uh, there's a there's a good motivation. There's an island at the end of it. <laughs> you, you're basically the real life Moana. Um, <laughs> with all, without all the good songs, I just sing like <laughs> terrible songs or I make them up in my head. I'm sure the crew are well uh, tired of my uh, random <laughs> mumblings and humming and trying to stay awake and I'm sure you I'm sure you're being I'm sure you're being modest but in terms of <laughs> in terms of the, the message for for this journey in particular what is the messaging here this voyage it's interesting this will be the eighth voyage that Hokulea has taken along this pathway you know and it truly is uh, an ocean road an ocean um, you can call it a highway that connects Hawaii and Tahiti. Uh, we call it Kealai Kahiki, and there are many notable places in Hawaii that carry that name as well. When we talk about it in reference to this almost natural way that somehow the geography, the weather, the stars, they perfectly align right during the season, right in this space uh, from all the way up in 19 and a half north when we left in Hilo, all the way down to 18 south in Tahiti, um, where everything comes together to give you all the ingredients to make a voyage like this on one of these canoes. And, you know, they are unique. They sail in a very specific way, uh, yet somehow it opens up to you right then. And and it is very natural um, journey and path that I imagine many people have taken for hundreds of years. Um, and I think we were bringing our attention back to that in this voyage. <clears throat> We'd actually intended to do it back in 2020, uh, postponed for very obvious reasons. And 
always trying to think of when that, uh, it felt like it was never going to come actually during 2020, 2021, trying to maintain our focus on what that voyage is, what it's meant to be. You know, those times of lockdown were a little bit of a struggle to think about maybe not the relevance of it. I don't think I've ever questioned that, but how, how can we go back to doing what we're doing when we're in the state that we're in? There was, it was a time where I was like, are we ever going to do this voyage? <laughs> are we ever going to get back out there? And I think it was actually perfect that what it does is it takes us back to our ancestral homeland, to Kahiki, uh, to Tahiti in a way that recenters us. I think so for so many, and certainly for me, um, it, it did feel a bit lost at times uh, when you were looking for direction in the pandemic, we were trying to figure out what the course of lives were going to be. You know, so many things were changing, health, jobs, money, all the challenges of daily life. And, and it does affect, you know, how you think about voyaging and what message you bring. And so it, I think it had a very personal meaning of returning to someplace that centers us around what's important, where we come from. Tapu Tapu Atea, especially, which is where we're actually headed next week, um, is considered sort of that navigational, that power center. And I think it's a place to remind us of our power, of our direction, of the way we've been able to find that for centuries. And we'll continue to do so despite what, you know, may temporarily be happening during this period um, of time on the planet. So I, I think somehow it worked out that it was more appropriate to go now than, than back then and that we needed that reminder. And also this, I think, opens us up to continuing the voyaging, almost like a bit of a, a, bit of a baptism uh, <laughs> into the next, the next chapter. We are coming up on almost 50 years since Hokulea's maiden voyage in 1976. Um, this will be 46 years since then. And uh, so many of the, the crew that are sailing the canoes are new faces, are young faces. We are two, three, four generations down now. But in terms of leadership, we've always had very strong leadership uh, from back in the 70s and the 80s. And it does feel like this chapter is coming of looking at where voyaging goes into the future. Um, what voyages do we need to take? How do we go about them? Do we have the skills? Do we have the right na'al? Do we have the right spirit and the right... Um, the right way to remember where we came from to do these things. So, uh, <laughs> so many ideas wrapped into one voyage and you have a lot of time to think about these when you're out there. There's, of course, there's no TV, there's no traffic, there's no you know, work work, I suppose. Um, there's just you and, and really being with your thoughts and being with why we're doing this. And certainly we are getting ready for another big voyage coming up next year called Moana Nui Akea, which is celebrating this, this whole ocean space we are in the Pacific. Uh, and I feel like certainly after this, this part of the journey, we still have one more to go to get back home. Um, everyone's feeling very positive, um, sort of revitalized and, and feeling like we're back out there again, you know, that there is this thing to look forward to. If anything, I think Kokolea has always been a symbol of light and inspiration and direction for the future. So, sorry, that was the long answer. <laughs> I <Nice. all> <laughs> And of course, um, as with most of your voyages, you're arriving into Tahiti uh, at the beginning of a very important conversation about uh, oceans, about conservation. Tell us a bit about that. Yes. And the conversation about oceans is one that has been growing and growing for as long as I've been part of voyaging. This is now my 12th year um, having the opportunity to sail with these canoes, with Hokulea, with Hikianalia, to take these long voyages. And with each one, I find our crew, our leadership, our community sort of digging deeper and deeper into what our role, what our kuleana is and our responsibility uh, to that environmental space that we live in, to the ocean, to our 
you know, personal connections to them, but to really making a statement about what we're going to do, how we're going to direct the future of it, how, uh, you know, the way we talk about it, the way that we take care of it is going to affect this ocean for future generations. When we're out on the ocean, I suppose you could say uh, that, that, you know, we, I think everyone in the Pacific calls the ocean home. And certainly when you're on a very tiny island, the size of a canoe, uh, it definitely is. And that is your whole world and your whole space. That wraps up Pacific Waves for today. Lehua Kamalu and her crew returned to Oahu around the 15th of June. You can access extended versions of Pacific Waves interviews on our website, www.rnzi.com. And remember, you can download us free to your device from Spotify, iHeart or Apple Podcasts. Tofa Suifuo.